So welcome everyone to Science Society, also for our future listeners and of course a special welcome to you Ryan. And um, be, before we start, um, let's let's um, have some, um, let me introduce you to the audience and then we'll go from there. So uh, Dr. Ryan Hinnegan, he's um, in the Faculty of Science at the School of Mathematical Sciences um, and um, at Queensland University of Technology. And he did his uh, PhD at the University of Queensland in Applied Mathematics and Statistics. And then he did a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Barcelona. And he is a global marine ecosystem modeler with a background in applied mathematics and statistics. And he, um, yeah, as I said, since 2020, uh, he has worked as a lecturer at School of Mathematical Science at the Queensland University of Technology. And in his research, he is focusing on building global marine um, ecosystem models so that we can understand how life in the world's ocean is affected by human activities, which will then uh, help us in the future to assess the global impacts of climate change, human demand, extreme events, and conservation of global marine life. Uh, this, yeah, so we are really uh, happy uh, that you could make it here today and to have you because we think uh, it's really important the work that you do. So uh, yeah, we really appreciate it. And uh, usually Victoria does the rest of the introduction in the interview format. So I'll pass the mic over to Victoria. Thank you. No worries. All right, thank you, Ryan, so much for being here. We look forward to hearing your presentation. Thank you, Katarina. Um, so my question is just to gain a bit deeper knowledge of you before we hear about your research, maybe a bit about your background. And that would be if you can think back into your back in your life when you first noticed a connection to science. So maybe this is a childhood memory. Maybe it's a class or a relative. Um, you know, was involved or gave you something or just really anything that sparked your um, noticing science as an affinity for you? Yeah, um, that's a great question. Um, <clears throat> so I think um, it like first sort of, I first took notice of science probably, probably during high school, like learn in in biology, so um, like learning about learning about evolution and ecology, and like the um, yeah, so so how how biological life and systems go together. Um, but then from there, like I've always had, I think that, but coupled as well with um, mathematics and statistics, so like the ability of the ability of mathematics um to use like abstract abstract ideas to explain um and model physical reality um I, I think is is really remarkable um and so yeah my so i 
yeah, I, I originally got into my my undergraduate studies at university were um, were in mathematics and statistics. Um, originally, actually, so like moving away from like biology and ecology at first, and I was more interested in applications for renewable energy, um, but uh, came back to ecology and biology um, in like in my honors and then my PhD. Um, and again, it was, yeah, the, the ability, the ability that, that we have to try, like to build, build models of um, like small scale ecological systems, or in my case, building global scale models, and then using them to try and understand um, what human impacts are, but also what drives the structure of these systems as well. Thank you. And can you please, I, I imagine this is, this is going to Oh, maybe lean on your research or have um, maybe explain some of what you've done. But but you mentioned the idea of abstract ideas to explain physical reality. Can you give an example of that? Yeah, so I think. Um, so like, well, the thing what I'll be talking about today, um, like the the model that we built, um, and you know like what so i'm not I, I wouldn't say like any any model there's you know there's the famous saying like some some models are all models are wrong some are useful um but i think like in in applied in applied mathematics and ecology and climate change um like we we build models of um uh, we build models of the earth system um and that's sort of to represent uh like yeah to represent how how different how different parts of the the earth system so physical and ecological and biological how they all interact um, to give rise to like the environment and global processes so i think um like the, the model that i built the model that i built with um a group of people in my phd and afterwards that was that was sort of like an abstract that's a it's, a it's a representation of the marine ecosystem um at a global scale and it allows us to it allows us to to understand the drivers of observed processes in the marine ecosystem. Yeah. Right. Thank you so much, because that, that sounds like, um, you know, even for our listeners in the future, a very interesting concept. And so maybe what what that provides is a structure to examine, um, maybe to leave if it doesn't work for every every um, configuration that you're examining. but but also to test things. That's right, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so like, I think, um, so we use models, we use models and climate models in particular to try and understand what's going to happen in the future and also why what is happening, is ha like why what's happening now is actually happening. So trying to understand drivers. And I think that, um, you know, like pe people who build models, we understand like models, um, Models are only as good as like um, the data that's used to build them, the like the ideas, the assumptions, and so it's good to be transparent about their limitations. But models, I think, models are most useful for testing hypotheses, hypotheses about why things are the way they are. Um, and so that's yeah, so that that's sort of like we can use models to try and understand what might happen and why things are happening, but it's. It's more the, the second one of why things happen as well that I think is really interesting. 
So interesting. Thank you very much. Well, I'm sure we're all ready to just move right into hearing about the zooplankton. And so I would say now I will pass you the mic and then Katarina and I are here to handle any um, questions in the in the chat. There's an echo. Um, sometimes people will put listeners will put a question in the room chat and so we can share that with you and then perhaps have a Q&A following your discussion. So the mic is yours. Thank you so much, Thanks. Ryan. No worries. Um, so should I, so I can't see my slide. So there's not a screen share. So right. Will, will I just tell people what slide Right. I'm on, or... So so usually the speaker will say, now I'm on slide three. And then I'm okay. moving to slide four. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, so we'll follow along as you, oh, right. But you can't see the slides. Yeah, that's right. But I'll just, I'll just say that. Um, hmm. that's okay, okay. If, you, if you have it in your mind. Okay, okay, or you know, or the, or the key point of the slide, so then we can move along with you. I'm sure it will be, um, it will make sense. Thank you no so worries. much. Mm -hmm. Oh, good. Um, so starting on slide one, the title slide. Um, so what I what I'm going to build towards is um, looking at climate-driven zooplankton shifts and how they cause, or how how we hypothesize that they cause large-scale declines in food quality for fish. Um, and so uh, I just want to acknowledge the other co-authors on this study. So Professor Anthony Richardson at University of Queensland with Jason Everett and Patrick Sykes, and then Professor Julia Blanchard at the University of Tasmania. Um, and so, so the structure of this, this presentation, before I start talking about the results from the Nature Climate Change paper, I'm just going to give, give a bit of background on the on the ecology of um, marine ecosystems like at a global scale, so quite broad brush ecology, um, and then also just give a bit of an overview of the model too. So um, let's let's get stuck in. So we'll move to slide two. Oh shit! What happened? Sorry, hang on. If you're still there, can you still hear me? Yes, we're here. We hear you. Great. Sorry, my um my screen just switched off. Um, well, you know, technology. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and we forward ahead. Thanks. Great. For... Oh, no worries. So on slide two, um, so it's just, we're talking about the marine food web or marine ecosystems. Um, at the base of the food chain in most ecosystems are phytoplankton. So phytoplankton are primary producers. They convert sunlight and inorganic nutrients into biomass. And unlike primary producers on land, so like trees or grass um, or you know, anything like that, um, phytoplankton in the ocean, so primary producers are microscopic and they don't swim. So plankton is Greek for wanderer or drifter. So they, they move with currents. Uh, and so like a, a bit of a fact about phytoplankton, so half of half of the oxygen in the atmosphere comes from phytoplankton. Um, so half of every breath you take, the oxygen in that breath comes from the sea and from phytoplankton. And so at, onto slide three, at the other end of the marine food web are groups that we know, and I'm going to lump them all together as fish, but I'm also including in here um, sort of abusing the word fish and including mammals um, and things like that, but it's basically um, the highest level of the marine food, marine food chain is fish. And so they prey on smaller organisms. So in the oceans, 
energy moves up the food chain by big things eating small. Um, and fish are really important for humans as well. So we, um, they're, they're a significant part of the global diet, um, especially in terms of micronutrients. And humans harvest about 100, 100 million tons of wild catch of fish, fish per year. And that's not including aquaculture as well, which is about um, another 100 million tons on top of that. So moving on to slide four. So bridging these two, um, these true parts of the system are zooplankton. And zooplankton can be thought of as like the linchpin of the marine ecosystem. So as I said, big things eat small things. And so um, zooplankton are the primary consumers of phytoplankton, and then they're the prey of small fish. So they're the pathway that in it, primary production moves up the food chain to fish. Um, so moving on to slide five, the zooplankton, they're not a homogenous group. They're extremely diverse. So all major phyla are represented in the zooplankton, including chordates, so things with the backbone, and that includes humans. Um, they're represented in the zooplankton as well. Um, so they don't just have like enormous um, diversity in that respect. They're also physically very diverse. So they cover 15 orders of magnitude in body size from single cell flagellates, which are like picograms to jellyfish, which are tens of kilos. And so to give you an idea of the size difference or the size range of zooplankton, it's like comparing an ant um, with the pyramids of Giza. So it's an enormous size range that zooplankton cover. So moving on to the next slide. So it's not just size, um, they also have a huge range of feeding characteristics. So this figure, um, th this, this diagram here, it's sort of showing going from the bottom to the top, you've got phytoplankton at one end, fish at the other, and then a lot of different zooplankton groups in between. The solid boxes are the size ranges of the different groups. The dash boxes are the size ranges of what they eat. So remember how I said in the oceans, generally big things eat small. You can see how those dash boxes are, um, so that you've got the solid box and then the dash box, and the dash box is over a smaller size range than the solid box. And so that's sort of showing um, the, the difference in sizes between uh, the zooplankton, different, the different zooplankton groups, and then what they eat as well. Um, and so what this means, um, this figure, is that changes in the composition of the zooplankton have implications for how energy moves from phytoplankton to fish. So um, not only are they very diverse, but the composition of the zooplankton community across the global oceans changes depending on environmental conditions. And so um, if it's changed, that, what that means is that um, because there's a bunch of different body sizes and feeding characteristics, so the predator-prey mass ratio in particular, so that's, that's like the ratio of a predator to its prey size. So, you know, for example, um, if I'm a human or like if, if I weigh, you know, 80 kilos um, or I mean, that isn't pounds, 170 pounds, and I eat something that's 10 times smaller than me, the predator-prey mass ratio there is, is 10 to 1. Um, and so it varies across different groups. And so what that means then is that um, if, so this figure is of a size spectrum. And so um, on, it's all in the log scale. So on the x-axis, you've got body weight. So from, from phytoplankton up to fish. And on the y-axis, you've got um, the abundance of different organisms. 
Um, so you can see that the phyto, so the phytoplankton community that doesn't change, but if if we have a zooplankton group that's dominant, sorry, I'm, I'm on the next slide, slide seven, but if we have a zooplankton group that's dominated by larvations, which have a huge predator-prey mass ratio, um, they're going to be there'll be fewer trophic steps, so fewer steps that energy needs to move up the food chain to get to fish, and so that means that more fish can be supported, and so you can see how that that blue line um, coming off the purple line um, is is higher than the red than if we have a zooplankton community that's dominated by carnivorous copepods that are eating things closer to their own body size. So if you imagine if you've got if you've got organisms that are eating things closer to their own body size, there's more steps to get up the body size the food web to a given like fish organism, and so. At each step, there's loss, like respiration, um, just keeping keeping yourself alive, and so that means that less fish can be supported if, um, depending on uh, what the zooplankton community is made up of. So that's um, so we, we talked about body size, we talked about feeding characteristics like predator-prey mass ratio, um, and if there's any questions, so at this stage, like let me know because this can be like this this bit can there's a bit of information here um yeah so happy to stop but um so moving on to slide eight so we've got body size and feeding feeding behavior but we also have composition so zooplankton have a range of body compositions and so if we just look in terms of carbon content um they range from 0.01 to 20 percent carbon so this has implications for predators so moving on to the next slide you can imagine, so I said how jellyfish are zooplankton. So jellyfish have a very low carbon content of about 0.01% versus um, a group like crustaceans, like krill, that whales eat. They have, they're very carbon dense and they have a carbon content of about 20%. And so if you imagine, if you had, to, if you were a predator or if you're a human, um, you can imagine the, the, the nutritional difference between jellyfish and krill it's almost it's sort of like a human having, you know, a hundred grams of jelly versus a hundred grams of steak, and so you can imagine um, that the steak is going to do a lot more for you nutritionally and energy-wise than eating a hundred grams of jelly, and so it's a similar um, that the that that sort of says then that if we have more gelatinous zooplankton, then the the, the diet quality of things that eat the zooplankton is going to be lower. Um, that, that's what this would suggest as well. So we have this information about zooplankton diversity. And so moving to the next slide. So I've been ta I talked a bit in the intro about models, um, but zooplankton really are a missing link in ecosystem models. So this, um, that the diagram just shows a few different types of models um, of the marine ecosystem from phytoplankton up to fish or sharks and dolphins, and seabirds in the case of subfigure B. But zooplankton are usually, they resolve fa fairly simply just as like a single group or maybe broken into small or large size classes. And so that means that all of the diversity that I just spoke about is missing from these models. So moving on to them. And that, that means then that we, we don't have visibility on how the, how, that, how the diversity of functional traits of the zooplankton community can affect um, the marine ecosystem. So moving on to the next slide. 
So a way forward from this is to resolve zooplankton using functional traits. And so, you know, I spoke, I've spoken about three functional traits, body size, size-based, so um, feeding behavior and carbon content. And I talked a bit about how they're major factors in determining zooplankton's role in the marine ecosystem, but it also helps to drive their fitness in a given environment. So zooplankton with certain traits will do better in certain environmental conditions than in other environmental conditions. And so um, this trait-based framework is what we use to build our model. And so we're using the model to, oh, sorry, I'm on, I'm on page 11 or slide 11, but I'm just about to go to slide 12. Um, so with two questions, so first of all, how do these functional traits, so how does zooplankton body size, feeding behavior, and different carbon content, carbon contents give rise to global patterns in zooplankton community composition? But then also the second question is how would climate change alter these patterns? And if it does alter these patterns, what are the implications for fish communities? So next slide, slide 13, a single slide about the model so the model, as I said, it's a size spectrum framework. So what that means is we're representing groups primarily by body size, but we have different functional groups, especially for zooplankton, defined by size range, carbon content, and feeding behavior. And so if you look at that, um, the, the line plot, that size spectrum plot in the top right-hand corner, you can see phytoplankton are um, that green line and in the smallest size classes, fish are the blue line in the largest size class. And then between them, we've got a bunch of different groups of zooplankton, so nine different zooplankton groups. And so underneath that is just a, it's a diagram of um, eight of those groups and what they, or not, yeah, nine of the groups, sorry, and sort of what they look like. So you can already see from this figure, from, from these, these figures, um, that there's a lot of, you can sort of see the, um, the diversity in the body types of the different zooplankton that we're representing in our model. Um, I mentioned as well that um, the environmental conditions, um, that, so you know, environmental conditions vary depending on where you are in the world. And so we need to include that in our model uh, because the composition of the zooplankton will change depending on the environmental conditions. So on the next slide, slide 14, we drive our model using annual sea surface temperature and chlorophyll concentration. So these figures are a bit old, sorry. Um, so it, this is a very coarse resolution map. You can sort of see the pixels of, um, the, uh, of the different areas of the world, but we, we use a finer scale grid, as you'll see for the model, but this sort of just gives you an idea. Um, but you can see, you know, sea surface temperature is pretty straightforward. Um, it's colder at the poles, so zero degrees where the ice is, or, or minus two even. And then as you move up to the subtropical and equatorial region, regions, um, you know, your, your temperature increases to about 30 degrees in the warmest areas. Chlorophyll is a measure, so the bottom figure on 14 is a measure of primary production, so phytoplankton biomass, so primary producers. And so you can see that there are these areas in the middle of each ocean basin, basin called oligotrophic gyres. They're the dark blue areas. So they're, they're regions where there's low primary production. Um, but then you can see 
in coastal areas and then in these upwelling regions um, along the equator and in polar waters, there's higher phytoplankton biomass, a higher primary production. So we'll come, this, this, um, this figure is important, figure B, to sort of interpret the model and what it's doing. So slide 15, just quickly. So let's go to our first, so we've explained the model and some of the ecology behind it. But slide 15 um, is talking about, is our question, how do functional traits explain global patterns in zooplankton community composition? So slide 16, and this is, this is a figure from a paper um, that's in review that I'm co-first author on with, with um, Jason Everett, who was also an author on this work with Nature Climate Change. So the, the figures on the bottom, are sh the first figure that's mostly green is showing the proportion, proportion of biomass of phytoplankton, flagellates and ciliates across the global chlorophyll gradient. So from low chlorophyll on the left to high chlorophyll on the right. So you can see that the composition of the phytoplankton changes. So in low chlorophyll areas, there's more small phytoplankton, that's the pico and nanophytoplankton, so that's the, the very light green shade. And then as we move into, there's also more flagellates and ciliates, so, hetero, so um, small zooplankton that eat those groups. Then as we move into high chlorophyll areas, um, there's more microphytoplankton, so they're larger phytoplankton groups. And so the figure at the bottom then is the zooplankton community. And so you can see that there's changes in the composition of the zooplankton from low to high chlorophyll. So in low chlorophyll areas, we see more carnivorous groups like jellyfish, ketignas, and salp. So they're the reddy orange groups. But we also see more filter feeding zooplankton like larvations and salps. Sorry, um, yeah, larvations and salps. So they're like the brownie, I don't know what that color is. Uh, it's like a brownie yellow sort of color um, at the bottom of that figure. And so they're more prevalent in low chlorophyll areas. Then as chlorophyll increases, the zooplankton are dominated more and more by omnivorous zooplankton like copepods and euphorza. So they're the blue group. So um, if we look at this on a map, so on slide 17, we can see, so the top, the, on, the, on the right hand side, the top map is of the proportion of the biomass that's omnivores. The middle is the proportion of zooplankton biomass that's carnivores. And on the bottom, it's the proportion of biomass that are filter feeders. And each of the, the images on the left of the maps are like pictures of what um, these different groups actually look like. And so you remember how I said um, that chlorophyll picture is really important. And so it helps us, the, the picture of chlorophyll, remember, is it's a map, it's sort of a map of primary production. It's a proxy for primary production. Tell the, the, the more chlorophyll there is, generally the more primary production there is. So the more, um, it's sort of like you're comparing deserts to rainforests. So in the middle of the, those dark blue areas are like deserts and the lighter green red areas, they're like more like rainforests or highly productive areas. Um, and so you can see that the composition, how that changes, how it tracks the chlorophyll gradient. So omnivores are prevalent everywhere, but especially in coastal and upwelling regions. And then carnivores and filter feeders dominate in the low chlorophyll open ocean. And they do that because smaller phytoplankton are more prevalent. So filter feeders, they, um, filter feeders like on the bottom, those groups are like 
Um, so you know how whales, there are filter feeding whales, so the like the blue whale and stuff, and these they eat um, krill. And so krill are millions of times smaller than they are. And so filter feeders are a bit like that, except in miniature. So filter feeders eat, they eat phytoplankton that are millions of times smaller than them. So what that means is that in low chlorophyll areas where small phytoplankton dominate, filter feeders are able to eat those phytoplankton directly, whereas groups like omnivores, um, they can't access those phytoplankton. So they, they consume smaller zooplankton first, and then um, that, that, that eat the smaller phytoplankton. So there's like additional trophic steps to get from small phytoplankton to omnivores. Um, it has to go through small zooplankton first, whereas filter feeders, they can access that small phytoplankton directly, which is why they do better in, um, in those open ocean areas. So that's the model. Um, and it's, it's a, that's um, the, the sort of a bit of an explanation as well for what drives the changes in, in global zooplankton composition or what our model suggests um, is that it's mainly driven by changes in the phytoplankton and then the different functional traits of the zooplankton, especially what they eat, determines um, how well they do in different parts of the ocean. Um, so I'll move on now to the study. So moving to slide 18. So we have an idea now of what drives biomass composition in the model. But how the next slide asks the question, so how will climate change alter these patterns and what are the implications for fish? And so um, this, this now, uh, the, the, hopefully now we have a good overview of um, the model and what, what drives the composition of the zooplankton. So now we can talk about some of the results from this paper that I led um, that was published earlier this year. So just a bit of background first, um, next the slide 19, on how we project future zooplankton. So um, to, 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 you, to run the model into the future, we need to know, remember how I said we've got temperature and chlorophyll or primary production, that's what drives the model. So we need to know what happens to those variables into the future to know what happens to the zooplankton into the future. And so to, to do that, we need, um, what we do is we use earth system models that provide these environmental variables. But um, whenever you're doing future projections, there's not just uncertainty in the models. So the models are an imperfect representation of the earth system, but there's also huge uncertainty as to the, tra the trajectory of future climate change. And so we usually run different climate scenarios to try and capture that uncertainty. So what I mean by that is, um, if you look at the, fig the figure on this, on this, um, this, this slide, um, so the black line coming up to about 2020, that's, that's the a track of net of historical global carbon emissions, so gigatons of carbon dioxide per year. But then coming off that, branching off that are a bunch of different potential future trajectories, trajectories of climate of um, human emissions. And then on the right hand side of the figure are like windows of warming that could happen based on those scenarios. So at the very top, um, you've got a baseline scenario that's sort of like unabated, uh, that we just keep emitting more and more carbon um, and plateau 
you know, around 2070. And that would put the uh, that would put us on track for about five greater than five degrees of warming, which would be catastrophic um, globally. Then on the other end, you've got um, a low emission scenario, which is where emissions come down and we hit net zero in 2050, and that would be more in line with um, the Paris targets of less than two degrees Celsius warming by the end of the century. You can see as well there that these CO2 scenarios, um, the lower ones. They also rely on us actually removing carbon from the atmosphere um, later this century as well. Then in the middle, you've got like the yellow, the yellow line, which is probably the yellow line and that brownie yellow line. Um, that's at the moment the most likely trajectory of climate change. So about two to three degrees of warming is our current trajectory, which is where emissions sort of flatline um, and then start to slowly come down. Um, and so based on current, based on um, national commitments to emissions reduction, this is sort of the most, that, that range is sort of the, the most likely range where we're going to end up um, with warming, but we don't know, um, we might do better, we might do worse, especially if there are natural feedbacks from the Earth system in response to warming. So we need to model multiple scenarios. So we choose a low emission scenario to model an intermediate scenario and a high emission scenario. So that's like um, a bit of a a bit of a sidetrack on how we how we run models into the future for climate change. So moving on to slide twenty, looking at our model itself. So it's good it's good first of all to just look at changes in future zooplankton biomass. So um, we're using three different scenarios. So one two six is a low emission scenario. 370 is an intermediate intermediate scenario, and 585 is that unabated high emission scenario. And we can see how the this the, the big figure on the left is the change in global zooplankton biomass under the different scenarios from 1980 to 2100. And so depending on the emission scenario, we end up with between a 7 and 17% decline in zooplankton biomass on average globally. The little figures on the right show though show that um, that's not the whole story. So um, different zooplankton groups are affected differently by climate change. So um, the red line is carnivores. So um, the, the blue line are filter feeders and the green line represents the change in the biomass of omnivorous zooplankton. And so we can see that in, in all the emission scenarios, generally as climate, the, the higher the emissions, the, the greater the biomass decline as it gets warmer. Um, but the magnitude of the decline differs between the three groups. So um, carnivores and filter feeders are less affected by climate change than omnivorous zooplankton, which are the most affected under all scenarios. So moving to slide 21. So this, this is a map. Um, and I, t I promise this is the last, uh, there's a lot of maps here, so we'll go through this slowly. Uh, no more maps after this. Um, but we've got uh, the top, top row is like the baseline composition of the zooplankton from the model. And so we already saw this from the earlier study. Um, and we, we know what's driving this pattern. So we can see that in the oligotrophic, those low chlorophyll areas, carnivores and filter feeders are more prevalent. So the, the top figure, the baseline, that's the percentage composition of the zooplankton community. So, you know, 80, the eight, so say for example, omnivores are 80% 
um, in, in high, high productivity in polar areas. And so that means that they're 80% of the biomass of the zooplankton in those areas. But in the oligotrophic gyres, carnivores and filter feeders are more prevalent. And so they make up together about 40 to 50% of the biomass in those areas. Then um, the, bottom, the bottom nine panels, so the rows are the different climate scenarios from low emissions to high emissions. You can see that the patterns are very similar, um, just that the magnitude of the change is greater. And then the rows are the different groups up, um, like so carnivores, filter feeders, and omnivores. So um, here, what this is showing is the change in the composition of the zooplankton under the different emission scenarios. So you can see that um, across the different climate scenarios, carnivores and filter feeders increase as a proportion of the zooplankton, so they're more prevalent. So we saw in the we saw in slide 20 that the total zooplankton biomass goes down, but, but this figure shows us that the composition of the zooplankton changes now. So carnivores and filter feeders become more prevalent as a as a proportion of the zooplankton. Whereas omnivores, the far right hand um, column, they decline in prevalence across most of the ocean. All right, so moving to slide 22. So the implications for fish. Um, so what we can do with the model. So remember, we, we haven't talked about fish yet, but the model does have fish in it, a really simple representation of fish. And so then we can actually look at the diet of um, the diet composition of the fish communities. So this is for small fish. And so what we see in figure A, that's the composition of the, of the, the composition of small fish, small pelagic fish diet. And so what you can see is that um, uh, for, through time, this is under the high emission scenario, through time, the proportion of the diet that comes from omnivores, so that's, that's the green, goes down and is replaced by carnivores and filter feeders. And so then we can, what we can look at is the change in the, the carbon content of um, fish diet, their trophic level, and then their overall biomass through time. And so carbon is like a measure of diet quality. Um, you know, like, as I said, like the difference between eating jelly versus eating steak. It's a pretty, it's a very, you know, it's, um, there's a lot of different ways of measuring diet quality, but um, carbon is sort of a first order metric um, that, that we used at least. And so what you can see is that um, as omnivores decline and filter feeders, so filter feeders are very gelatinous. So they're salps and larvations. They, they have much less carbon in them compared to omnivores. Carnivores also include jellyfish and they have very low carbon content. So panel B shows us that as a result of the change in the diet composition, the carbon content of small pelagic fish's diets decreases. And so it decreases by about 8%, so from 9% um, to about 8.6%, or 8.7%. Uh, sorry, so it's a bit, yeah. Um, sorry, I don't think that's 7%. But yeah, so that's, that, that's, so there's a decline in the quality of their diet. And so there's also um, panel C is like the trophic level. So that's, Remember how I said big things eat small in the marine ecosystem? So the trophic level, it's like the number of steps to get from phytoplankton up to small pelagic fish. So it's like how many steps does energy need to travel through to get up to a given size class? 
And so we can see that because carnivores are more prevalent, um, the trophic level of fish, of small fish increases. So there's more, there's more, there are more trophic steps. The, the, the food chains are longer in future waters. And then as a result of lower, lower carbon in the diets and higher trophic levels, and also falling primary production, which we haven't really looked at, um, the biomass of fish decreases by about 20% by um, the end of the century. So that's sort of showing the implications for fish. And I'll finish on slide 23. Um, and so, I mean, the question would be, these are all model results, but has, any of, has anything like this, is this observed, has this been observed in the real world? And it has. So what our model suggests of like gelatinous zooplankton replacing carbon-dense omnivorous zooplankton, um, this, was, this sort of a shift was observed during the blob which was a massive North Pacific heat wave that lasted for four years from 2013 to 2016. So temperatures um, like in the California current and the North Pacific were about three to four degrees above, above normal for most of that time. And what happened was there were, um, like there were less large phytoplankton, more small phytoplankton, and as a result, there were shifts towards more gelatinous zooplankton, which is sort of what our model suggests could happen at a global scale as well. And what happened there as well, um, what happened as a result for larger trophic levels, sorry, yeah, Marina said page 23, that's right. Um, so what happens for fish and larger mammals is that the shifts in the zooplankton cause declines in their weight and in their energetic content. And not only that, but there were widespread reproductive failures. So, I mean, the, the, changes, the changes in our model are relatively modest compared to what happened in this heat wave. And there's a few reasons for this, but it suggests maybe we're missing additional mechanisms as well in our model. Um, so we might be underestimating the effect of increasingly gelatinous oceans um, as a result of warming. All right, so I'll finish. So I'll just move on. Just slide 24 just has my email address as well, but you can see that in the paper too. Um, yeah, thanks very much. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing um, this research with us. It's um, yeah, it's really interesting to um, you know to hear the details from you and um, yeah, the explanations of all the maps. <laughs> They're really good and um, and <laughs> makes you know visualizes uh, the data really well. So thank you for for having these and. Um, yeah, if anyone wants to ask questions, feel free to uh, add them in the chat or raise your hand. And um, yeah, we'll go from there. But um, yeah, if it's okay, I'll just start um, until people come up. Hey, Katarina. Um, and, oh, yeah, can ahead. I just interrupt you? Just because I, a lot of people have come um, recently. And if it's okay, I just wanted to... Um, zip back to slide 10 because it's so significant with respect to just the overarching theme of this research in a nutshell where it says despite their critical role as the linchpin of the marine ecosystem zooplankton diversity is neglected in most ecosystem models and i think that's a huge statement and then ryan you were explaining the differences in carbon content sort of you know comparing jello to a steak 
or jello too, yeah. maybe a salmon. Yeah. So I, I just really want that's that's like a big explosion in your paper that I, I wanted to make sure that people saw that juicy morsel. <laughs> so yeah, sorry, Katarina. And um I'll I'll also say there as well yeah. um that um it, it is so this is getting better and that there are there's actually a couple of models that have come out. So the, this research, I didn't realize that um, there are a few different groups working on this, but there are, um, there's a, so Jessica Luo at, um, I think she's, I think she's at NOAA in the United States. And then also um, uh, the IPSL modeling team in, in Paris. So they're also looking at including gelatinous zooplankton in their models. So there is, there's, there is um, a lot of independent effort emerging to try and address this missing link as well. Thank you. Katarina. Oh, yeah, yeah. Thank you for pointing that out for people that um, came later. So that's really great of you. Thank you. And um, yeah, I know people raised their hand, but um, a, a question that always comes to my mind is, you know, I probably for everyone, like, what are we going to do or what can we think about for the future to kind of improve it is there any uh any way from your model to kind of uh predict you know which exact you know we had a we had a room here earlier about um you know ocean reforestation and that basically one uh species was really important would play a very important role for reforestation of um of the ocean and uh, which is a really important ecosystem so uh, does the data point to something that we could basically support in the system to kind of um you know prevent like even more uh, future malnutrition of you know fish and so on or is that something we still have to figure out basically yeah i think um at so what's what's driving what our model suggests is driving changes in the zooplankton um towards more gelatinous groups and um other the other models as well and then you know what, what was actually observed during the blog is um smaller phytoplankton so the, the so uh, if things are warmer or there's less nutrients um phytoplankton so primary producers are generally smaller um and so i think this is um in terms of so this i mean this is like a this is a, a global we we've sort of we sort of like examples like what happened during the blob, um, which is a more more regional system like the North North Pacific California current, and we we sort of blown that up and looked at it on a global scale. So I think like in terms of what we can do um, for like the, the things that we've observed, if we wanted to if we wanted to prevent um, like zooplankton communities becoming more gelatinous. At, at, at a global scale, um, the first sort of thing that needs to happen is that carbon emissions need to come down. Um, so, like, I, I think that this is a sort of it's another, it's another, it's another um, 
another perspective on like global scale ecological impacts as a result of like warmer warmer temperatures so like the first sort of thing that needs to happen is that like we need to stabilize global temperatures and then um you know <laughs> like think about how, how can we how can we bring them back down um which is like a that's that's a yeah that's that's pretty huge um but mm -hmm. everything sort of everything sort of flows out of that i mean yeah like on a smaller scale there might be things that could be done like you know ocean fertilization so trying to counteract those nutrient deficient uh so like lower nutrients there's also as well like um there's a, there's a lot of uncertainty too on how climate change will impact phytoplankton um so you know that there's uncertainty then in our results from that um but yeah generally for a global scale a global scale like a global scale change like this would need like a, a global scale solution yeah yeah um uh, thank you for that answer and just a follow-up question before i hand over the microphone um so can the system re recuperate well and how much time would we have like let's say you know that the temperatures will rise even if we would stop right now with everything that we're doing which we are not um let's say we um somehow a miracle happens and humanity comes together and improves everything like how much time would we have to to have the system still be able to bounce back do do you are you working maybe on the model to calculate uh, that too yeah so i mean in terms of like what happened with the blob the north pacific heat wave from 2013 to 2016 like the system bounced back quite quickly so i think it was like the following year things were shifting back to what they were so like there was larger phytoplankton um krill and new forces so krill came back and then like um you know fisheries bounced back as well so there were changes um there were changes afterwards but um, it was it was quite swift but in terms of like um you know recovery it's hard to say like i think i think the marine the marine ecosystem and natural systems are possibly more resilient than we think they are um but yeah it, it like it, it it also depends on yeah how like um how how warm things get and how long and all that sort of thing but um yeah it's yeah i, I can't be any more can't be any more specific than that but i guess like things things can bounce back fairly quickly if there is um like if there's capacity for that which is what was observed during the blog um when that when the temperatures came down well, well things bounce back yeah thank you that sounds encouraging in case just in case are we collecting them and freezing them in case we need to you know um Oh, wait for it and or... yeah like you know we're doing this with different seeds and plant seeds they are frozen somewhere um and hopefully a safe spot um are we doing this also with like yeah these different uh small life forms uh in the ocean just in case we need to kind of revive the ecosystem so i think um n not that i know of the zooplankton um and the reason for that would be like 
generally, so there, there are zooplankton everywhere. Um, and generally there are like members. So those maps that I showed, like either in areas where there are, there's a smaller proportion of different groups, they still, they still exist there. So like in, in, in polar regions and stuff, um, there are like, so I, I don't think you're going to see zooplankton or, or like la big functional groups of zooplankton going extinct. I think you just see the composition changing. Um, maybe, maybe certain species might go extinct, but um, like, uh, yeah, in terms of like the, the whole community, I think um, like the, the ocean, it, unlike on land, things can move a bit easier, especially in the ocean, open ocean. So different species of fish and organisms are moving like species are on the move in the ocean away from the equator as water's warm. So they're following, they're like broadly following their thermal niche. Um, and so, um, yeah, I, that, that's sort of unlike on land where like, you know, the, the environmental conditions for certain species might just disappear entirely. Um, that, um, that sort of thing is less likely to happen in the oceans it's more things will get moved around but i mean that's that's a very broad statement as well but yeah coming back to like you know this seed storage and stuff as far as i know there isn't something like that for um for like plankton in the oceans well thank you so much and i'll hand it over to lisa um and then you know let's just go in ptr um thank you Good. yeah thank you um, Svalbard, by the way, is the place where the seed vault is, and actually they had flooding shortly after it opened, so that was a bit concerning, but they say they've got it under control now. Yeah. Um, and I guess, like, my question uh, sort of relates to the blob concern. I know that the last few weeks there have been a bunch of people reporting anomalously high ocean temperature, um, in particular the surface temperature seemed to be spiking. And so I wondered, um, do you have models where you um, plan for outlier scenarios like that? And then also, um, are you concerned about it? Or do you think pretty much like the blob, it should resolve once temperatures do? Yeah, so is that like um, that they're, they're projecting like a, like we, we were in the La Nina, so the, um, the South Pacific was in La Nina, for the last three years and it looks like it's shifting pretty quickly to a pretty severe El Nino. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, so like that's, that's more near term. Um, so I'm not that like, like my model, you can see I was like running out to 2100. I probably wouldn't trust my model to do short term projections. Um, because it like, you know, that the mechanisms that it represents, at short term and smaller scale, you need to include more mechanisms that are like important at, at a smaller scale. So you sort of ignore that as you zoom out. But um, in terms of like uh, like the El Nino, yeah, I, I'm not not I, like I, I'm I'm looking at that as well because that that is quite concerning. That um, I think like water temperatures have been like at hit like record highs for the past couple of weeks, um, like unusually high. And so what might like, I think the, the, the blob was driven by El Nino as well, or it did occur at the same time as an El Nino. So we could see things like that happen again. Um, and I guess 
like scientifically it's it's a test case of um it's a it's another test bed of what happens to marine ecosystems under stress um, and so it gives a bit of insight into what's going to happen in the future um, but in terms of models not that like i i don't work with i don't work with those kind of models like usually for like those more immediate impacts it would be like regional scale models or like fisheries models so i know there are a ton of models for the california current because there are a lot of valuable fisheries there so they would be watching as well um, and probably trying to prepare um, based on what what's what's unfolding right now Yeah, yeah, thank you. Thank oh, you. go ahead. Oh, no, thank you. That was a response. And um, on the outlier modeling, though, do you have, like, um, I know you mentioned there are several models, but are you, these seemed like they were averages, and I'm wondering if you look at worst case scenario. Oh, like for an extreme event? Yeah. Yeah. Like, um, for instance, the AMOC specifically. <laughs> yes. Oh, like um, if the, if that broke down or something yeah, like exactly. that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, no. Um, so that's a bit trickier. So I have I have been involved with um, in terms of like extreme extreme events. I have been involved with studies that look at like um, that looked at nuclear war. Um, and I don't know if the I don't know if AMOC broke down there, but that's where you have like um, you know, freezing like freezing temperatures and low light for a few years. Um, the problem is that uh, models, yeah, the, the models aren't aren't good enough yet to sort of, so they're, they're quite good at projecting, the sort of models that I work with, they're quite good at projecting like long-term changes. But in terms of extreme events, we, we did run the marine ecosystem model like on what would happen to, to fish during a nuclear war. Um, and it was, you know, you get like an 80% die off, but then it bounces back 10 years later. And it's, I mean, like, it's like, you that's, that's probably very, very optimistic. Um, so models, I think can underestimate those like non-linearities where you have a sudden extreme event. Um, there, there was a study a few years ago. Um, who was it? Um, I'll see if I can find it, but it's basically that these, these global scale models, they, they don't handle extreme events very well. They're, they're good at predicting like average changes, but they underestimate the magnitude of like heat waves or, um, or that sort of thing. Um, yeah, which, so that, that, that as well, like trying to, trying to understand what can happen during extreme events, not just average long-term changes. That's an area of like, um, yeah, of, of pretty serious ongoing research. Yeah, thank you so much. Or at least, did you want to add something? Oh, no, that was great. Thank you. Yeah, I'm going to read Leslie's uh, question. She had to go, but she will listen to the recording um, to listen to the answer. So um, there's a linear trend for marine species by size on the um, log log scale, where we are seeing loss of species at the higher end, higher size. Is this happening with zooplankton as well? Could we use this as a proxy for species diversity to more easily put it into models? 
Yeah, so you can. Um, so there, there's an index of there's an index of species diversity um, that is a bit like it is a bit like size diversity. So what you're talking about um, linear trend for marine species by size on a log log scale. So that's that um, the abundance there's less. So in terms of abundance, there are fewer big things in the ocean than there are small. So like bacteria, there's ten to the twenty five bacteria per cubic meter of water um so it's like you know a billion trillion trillion a hundred or a thousand trillion trillion per cubic meter whereas like you know if you wanted to find a whale you might need to look over like um you know hundreds of square kilometers hundreds of cubic kilometers of water so but then um so there's that relate that scaling with size and there are similar things as well with with species diversity as well and people do people do look at putting those into models um but you ask like is this happening with zooplankton so are we seeing smaller zooplankton um so i'm not sure i don't i don't think so actually so i think but i'm, I'm not too sure i actually i think we do so in warmer areas zooplankton gets smaller generally they are a bit smaller but um there's also because zooplankton are like in the middle of the, the marine food chain between phytoplankton and fish what happens to the fish as well so if if there are less fish then there you know maybe there's less predation on the zooplankton so there can be more zooplankton um, but then there's also there's a bunch of different feedbacks um so but i so i think i think it's in terms of um less large species um or less large zooplankton organisms it's a mixed bag globally so some areas yes others no um and it depends on what's happening because because zooplankton are consumed by fish it also depends on what happens to their predators as well so like um so another you know we, we've been talking only about climate change but um you know the, the impacts of the impacts of historical fishing on marine ecosystems so like what industrial fishing for the last 150 years so i co-led a paper that we showed that the so what we've what we've removed the biomass we've removed from the oceans already from like fishing and whaling that that loss it's about 60 percent of biomass for organisms greater than 10 grams so from small fish up to whales that loss far exceeds the projected future loss in biomass under worst case climate change. So what that means is that um, if we want to understand what's happening to the zooplankton under climate change, we also need to we also need to think about um, how fisheries are managed and the impacts of fishing on on larger organisms as well. So it's a bit a bit more of a complex story with zooplankton uh, in terms of human impacts. Yeah, thank you so much uh, for that answer. And uh, yeah, Leslie, in the future, <laughs> I hope it answered your question. If not, reach out to us. And uh, Eric, did you have a question? Yeah, hi. Um, so, you know, I, I saw a salp once when I was scuba diving. It just tripped me out. I thought I'd seen some rare thing in it. And I looked it up and I'm like, wow, this is one of the most common organisms in the whole world. It was, a, it was crazy. Yeah. Um, but so uh, just riffing on a couple topics and see if any of these hit a button with you but um 
I saw Craig Venter years ago uh, discuss when he tra trawled the world collecting samples for molecular biology. Uh, I thought that was a fascinating journey he took. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, I, I read a paper not long ago about iron and iron being the, the uh, limiting factor in so much of ocean everything. And it was fascinating because it, it said that so many of the, the organisms have evolved all sorts of crazy techniques to keep iron in suspension from settling to the bottom of the ocean. And, you know, I, I know there's people who talk about putting iron in the ocean to, to you know, for, for, uh, to, to address that. I'm not so much talking about that, but just, just in general, just iron as a, as a limiting factor. And if you, if any of those topics, uh, you know, uh, have any, uh, relevance in this aspect, I'm sure they do, but if you study that or maybe you haven't, thank you. Yeah. So I've worked with, um, like Eric Galbraith and Daniele Bianchi. And so anyway, these guys, I'm not sure if, if that the work you're talking about is theirs where they, they've been, um, they've been thinking about, yeah, iron limitation in the oceans and that it's, it is a huge, yeah, it's, it's a major driver of, of animal biomass. Um, and so like I, I saw, I showed in my figures, um, so I, I don't, I don't include iron limitation in the model. Um, but, and so what happens then is that you do get, you get quite high biomass in the Southern ocean, for example, which is quite iron limited. And we know that um, like the mo models overestimate biomass and primary production in the Southern Ocean because like the iron question is um, like it's, it's, I think it's only just starting to become like uh, something that's recognized as needing to be included in models, um, at least in terms of high, like models resolving fish biomass. Um, so yeah, like where where I talked about like carbon. So the model, the model in terms of diet quality looks at carbon. Sorry about the background noise. Um, the model looks at carbon, which is really um, quite coarse and like, you know, a salp, um, like a lot of, a lot of hyotrophic levels eat salps um, and larvations. And they, you know, there are other, there's other, there's other, they have other nutritional um, benefits as well than just like carbon content. And so that would be something moving beyond just carbon, um, which in itself was an innovation. But yeah, I think what you found in your reading, like looking at iron limitation, we need to start. We need to start thinking about like um, how do we how do we model and resolve like micronutrient flows as well. So things like iron that are um, yeah that, that are limiting factors in like huge areas of the ocean, and also explain why why there's less biomass than we think there should be. In different parts of the ocean, especially like the southern ocean. You know, I guess, I guess, just thinking, thinking that through, I guess, different species of organisms, uh, bacteria included, might have different abilities. You know, bacteria have sideriformes which uh, absorb uh, iron, and so maybe the species. Uh, complex it has some relevance there as well and anyways that's yeah. definitely yeah um yeah exactly so if you like moving moving beyond just like functional traits like coarse functional traits like what we've used here to looking at species 
species diversity in terms of like um, iron requirements and that sort of thing, or not just iron, but other micronutrients. Yeah, that would be, that'd be a very important step too. Um, Cause it's like, depending on the bacteria present in a different system, um, you might have high primary production, but if, if it's the wrong kind of primary production, it can be quite toxic. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for that interesting question. That was um, really interesting. Um, Alvin, d Ryan, do you have time for one more question? I know we said an hour, we've been going a little bit. Yeah, over. yeah, another, another question, that's fine. Okay, great, thank you. Alvin, please go ahead. Cool, thanks. Uh, I actually used to work, hi, Ryan, I used to work with some people down in the Center of Excellence for Climate Extremes um, not too long ago. I'm really interested in this idea of you're, you're seeing a decline in um, sort of the zooplankton. Did you kind of get any sense of what effect that would have on the biological pump um, in terms of sequestering carbon? Because obviously we're going to lose some of the ocean sequestration in the Southern Ocean as it warms. Mm. What size would the sort of biological pump play in this and, and what you've seen, would that have an impact on it? Yeah, definitely. Um, and so that's not... That's not something that our model does yet. So our model is kind of unique in, um, in focusing more on like the food chain, so going up to fish. But where I said before, there are other groups looking at um, at the effects on the biological pump for carbon sequestration of like gelatinous zooplankton. Um, yeah, it does. So resolving those groups does have an impact on carbon sequestration. So. Um, I can give you a few references. Um, actually, may, maybe I'll, um, yeah, there's two papers, but I can't find them on top, like think of them on top of my head, but I'll, um, I could pass them on to you afterwards. Cause yeah, th this is, um, this is hugely important. Arguably, um, especially in the open ocean where there's, there's lower production and like, you know, those, those open ocean gyres aren't that important for fisheries, um, but they are quite important for like long-term carbon sequestration. And so, um, you know, there's, there's a paper coming out from a group in, in France using the IPSLR system model. So they include tunicates like salps in particular in their model. And they found that um, like that uh, the quantity of carbon sequestered in the future, um, it, it was it was higher if you factor in the effect of sal like so larger organisms like salps that, that are filter feeders. So they they um, you know they're they're big, so they sink quickly. But because they're filter feeders, they they can they scoop up a lot of really really small organic matter um, that would sink really slowly. So they're sort of they um, they're quite important for accelerating carbon sequestration of the deep ocean. And so including those groups, they have a really big impact on open ocean carbon sequestration. And so that's something that we want to, um, we want to explore with our model, but we're not quite there yet, but these other groups have, have started to look at that and that it, it is quite important for, um, for that as well. Cool, really appreciate it, thanks. Yeah, thank you so much for all those questions. Um, the last one I would maybe have, it's kind of a combination. You already discussed now what 
you you know you're working on um, for the future and is there anything you hope like um, for policy makers <laughs> like um, you know we talked about you know carbon capture co2 are people listening more nowadays are politicians what do you think and what do you kind of uh, expect or are you you know a little peek into the future what you're working on um and what you hope <laughs> that yeah so um i think there's there's more there's more and more attention being given to the marine ecosystem in terms of so there's this there's this idea or this thing called the blue economy and it's that um you know that there's a lot of there's a lot of economic potential from marine systems and so um in terms of zooplankton and plankton um it's sort of getting what alvin talked alvin's question about um like biogeochemical cycling and stuff there's a lot of interest in marine ecosystems for carbon sequestration and carbon removal um so I think that like there's a lot of work there and we need and I was at a conference recently where there's a, a lot of so I'm not really in that inner area too much yet at least but there are a lot of really smart people saying that like you know we, we really need to be careful in this area thinking about like that we can't just trying to think of ways for the ocean to suck up more carbon there there probably will be unintended consequences so we need to think carefully through that but um you know plankton plankton phytoplankton and zooplankton play a really huge role in the the global carbon cycle and so um that sort of an area in terms of carbon sequestration and the carbon cycle is something that i want to I, i would like to become more involved in and talking to people about that and thinking about how we can develop the model to do that um but then on the the higher end so my research sort of is sandwiched between plankton and fish so with these models as well, on a global scale, um, they can be used for like strategic policy making. So, you know, there was um, the recent like conference of the parties for the United Nations that um, ratified a, like protecting 30% of the world's surface by 2030 for nature. So I think that that, that went through and most countries were signatories. And that was quite a big, um, that was, a pretty big recent win um, in terms of policy um, for the marine ecosystem. Like, obviously, it's an agreement, so I don't, I, I don't know. I think that there's a huge amount of work to actually put it into practice. But um, talking in that sense of like, you know, massively scaling up protected areas in the oceans, um, it, it, that's really encouraging. So that's sort of that's sort of an area as well. Um, that um, I, yeah, think of being involved in. So I think it's like the ocean's really mysterious. We rely on it and really, we rely on it a lot more than we think, even if we have nothing to do with it directly. Um, and so like understanding it more and protecting more of it um, is a really exciting space to be working in. Yeah, and yeah, I, I um, heard it in the news when that was decided and I would assume that work like yours uh, really help um, pushing people towards that, which is wonderful and congratulations. And one last thing that I forgot to ask earlier, are you planning on 
um, making similar models and not with temperature change but with plastics and microplastic change or do you think for now we don't have that large scale of impact yet uh, from those because you've been you know I don't know but there's more and more literature that microplastics are everywhere and changing in zebrafish physiology and so on so so is there any plankton zooplankton um, models that kind of predict what the outcome of microplastics are not not that I know of, but yeah it's I, I mean I've seen the statistic that it's like microplastics the, the weight of microplastics will exceed plankton at some point in the near future in the oceans or yeah i'm not i think i heard that um but yeah do check that um yeah so I, i'm not i'm not sure but given given the scale of the problem and like how you know humans are apex predators we're at the top of the food chain um and we are we are the apex predator in the marine ecosystem so how microplastics sort of flow up to us as we consume fish um and and what role plankton has in that yeah that's that's definitely an area of, of ongoing research that I'm not directly involved in, but um, yeah, definitely quite interested in. Yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, I, I hope they don't clog up the place, but that was fine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, thank you so much for doing this work and for sharing it with us on top. Um, and this was really a wonderful discussion uh, so I hope you enjoyed it and maybe we'll hear you again one day and yeah. uh, we wish you all the best for your future research. Yeah, no worries. Thanks very much. Yeah, and thank you everyone. Thank you very much. Keep up the good work. Yeah, exactly. And thanks for everyone to uh, asking great questions and coming here and um, yeah, if you like discussions like this, uh, we have more rooms coming up, so check them out in the calendar. And I hope to hear you all back again one day. So um, I'll close the room in three, two, one. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Bye.